0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television. Good morning. Uh, I'm Alan Heger. I want to tell you uh, a little bit about the recent uh, effort Oops. within the... Uh, uh, this. EFRC grant that the uh, university or that this institute i Institute for Energy Efficiency received from the Department of energy we were, uh, we were uh, very pleased to learn uh, a few weeks ago that we were among uh, a relatively small group of institutions uh, that was a, w- were uh, winners in this, uh, in this competition we received here or we will receive over the next few years approximately a 19 million in this program from the Department of Energy it consists of many uh, different programs one of which is the uh, one of which is is is, is this focus uh, on next uh, generation solar cells uh, as you probably know uh, conversion of sunlight into electricity is a, is a very attractive uh, way to create energy, to create electricity. Uh, it's a known uh, method. It's been around for about 50 years. Uh, I have solar cells on, on my rooftop. Uh, my electric bill is zero. Uh, Most of the time during the day, my meter runs backwards. um, And it gives me a great deal of of pleasure to to get that electric bill every month and find that I uh, generated slightly more than I used. Um, But the problem, um, I think you all know, is that it's not competitively priced. The cost uh, of, of this uh, generation of electricity from the sun uh, is too high. Um, there's plenty of energy coming down at us. Uh, usual uh, phrase is that in one hour um, we receive on the earth enough energy to supply all the energy needs of the inhabitants of the earth for a whole year, okay. uh, That's a factor of 10,000 or something like that. So uh, there's plenty of energy. The issue is: can we get an, uh, efficiently uh, Can we do this conversion with sufficiently high uh, efficiency, and can we generate enough area of these solar cells to be able to uh, make that a significant contribution uh, to our energy needs? We get on the surface of the Earth uh, outside now approximately a kilowatt for every square meter. Okay, that's what's coming down. Um, That's a tenth of a watt, 100 milliwatts a square centimeter. But think of a kilowatt, think of a square meter. So you sort of know on your house how big that is, and and you also know that a a light bulb or something is uh, going to require something like 100 watts. If you have 10% efficient solar cell uh, and you have a one kilowatt per square meter, then one square meter is more or less capable of one light, bulb, light lighting one light bulb. And you know I'm being very uh, approximate in my numbers. Uh, so that means clearly that in order to have a significant contribution uh, from conversion of sunlight into electricity, one needs a lot of area. Okay. So we need, to have, we need to have technology. We need to develop technology which will be um, low cost um, and it, that is capable of a lot of area. Um, low cost so that it's competitive with fossil-burning uh, fuel-driven turbines for electricity. The, uh, the solar cell photovoltaic effort within this uh, Department of Energy grant to the Institute has three components. One component is based on low-cost plastic solar cells. They look something like that. Uh, they look like this. Here's an example. This is a 2-watt. Uh, plastic lightweight solar cell. Now I'll, sen- I'll spend a little time talking about this technology because it's the technology that uh, that I'm I'm fully committed to. Uh, but there's a group of us here uh, who are working on uh, the the materials that go into it, uh, the uh, precise nanoscale. Uh, morphology that is required uh, to make it work and work well, and the uh, evaluation, if you like, of of the technology. Uh, A strong group, this proposal, uh, when I read it after it was completed, uh, I had the feeling it was a good proposal, but that what would sell it was the strength of the team. And I honestly think that's, the, that's what happened. I mean, we, we really have uh, an outstanding group of people in each of these areas, and, and I'm, I'm quite confident that that's why we were successful uh, in attracting these funds. Another area is uh, indium gallium nitride-based solar cells. I'm not going to say very much about this, except to comment that um, there has been traditionally for 30 years... Uh, at UC Santa Barbara, uh, strength and a focus on compound semiconductors uh, that goes back to uh, Herb Cromer uh, in the in the 70s. Uh, that strength remains. Uh, many of these names are familiar to you, and, uh, and you've met uh, or you heard, I think, Steve Denbars, uh, Su- Suji Nakamura, John Bahars, these people you know. So, again, a very strong group, uh, a group that uh, Carries the kind of weight uh, to 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 attract this kind of funding, and the third area is quite inter- is quite interesting and novel. These are uh, nanostructured and bio inspired photo- photovoltaic materials uh, galen Stuc- Galen Stukey here is uh, uh, a chemist who 's uh, famous for uh, Creating nanoscale structures. Uh, Dan Morse uh, is is uh, excuse me. Dan Morse is focused on this effort. Uh, this is a little farther out, uh, but very interesting with, with, with interesting potential. So let me go um, back to this and 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 just tell you a little bit about about this approach that that. Uh, I'm involved with and and, and my colleagues. The idea here is that we're going to take a new kind of semiconductor, uh, semiconductors which are polymers, which are plastics, and those plastics can be dissolved in common solvents, and because they can be dissolved in common solvents, they can be formulated as, as inks, and we can print them, or we can coat with them, so the, the methodology here is to actually use roll-to-roll coating uh, to, create, uh, to create solar cells that look something like, like this. Okay, uh, And if you use plastic substrates and very thin materials, uh, and it's all plastic, uh, then it's bendable, it's very lightweight, uh, and as you'll see in a moment, capable of generating very large area. Now, the initial discoveries which opened this field were done here uh, in my labs in the, in the 1990s, and we had the audacity to start a company in 2001. The company is called Conarca, uh, and it's in uh, uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, near, uh, near Boston. And here's recently a, uh, a facility... That, they, uh, that has been manufacturing, that's the proper word, uh, roll-to-roll manufacturing of these pl- flexible plastic solar cells. You can see here that is a plastic roll, which uh, generates something about this size. Uh, but the point is, this is analogous to a printing press. In many ways, simpler because we're just putting more or less uniform coating on. It can go fast and it can generate a lot of area and it works. And what happens is you generate the first layer, uh, you, you, you put the material, the first layer of material here that runs all the way down to the end. Uh, the roll comes down around up and back to the second area and then the other way to the third and the fourth and the fifth. So you can put a multilayer structure together like this and out the end uh, comes a solar cell. Printing is perhaps the uh, lowest cost manufacturing that one can imagine. Uh, so the, the idea here is to create large areas and low cost with this uh, novel technology. Now, this, this really works. I mean, uh, of course, this isn't what we're doing here at the university. The, this, is, this is built upon work that we and others did in universities, uh, but uh, made that step, made the investments uh, to commercialize the technology. Uh, just one, one little comment. This is about a $250 million facility, uh, but it was acquired for... Uh, Less than five million dollars, because it it was a Polaroid roll-to-roll manufacturing plant for, for photographic film. They needed multi-layer films, and 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 the uh, the plant could not have been better designed for our needs. Uh, now, if you think of that about that a moment, uh, Kodak is no longer selling film and. Fuji is no longer selling film. So there's capability of this kind around. Uh, and so if the efficiency can be made high enough, uh, this could be ramped up to very large scale uh, in a relatively short time without even a, a very major capital investment. So let me say a word about efficiency. Uh, the problem that we're dealing with, these, these uh, this is real, okay? I carry this around. Uh, carry it in my suitcase. Uh, uh, take it through airports. It uh, gets beat up, uh, but it works. Okay. Right now here, even indoors, uh, this little meter is putting out three and a half volts. That's the uh, open circuit voltage. Uh, uh, I won't get into the details, but th- this is real. the uh, The problem is that the efficiency is not high enough. Okay. The cost is inversely proportional to the efficiency and to the lifetime. If you have a very high efficiency, then cost is going to go down in dollars per kilowatt hour. If the device only lives for a year, then all your manufacturing costs have to be taken out in a year. If it lives for 10 years, uh, cost in kilo- dollars per kilowatt hour goes down. So, we need to improve the efficiency, we need to improve the lifetime, uh, and that's, that's, uh, that involves basic science chemistry, synthesis, material science, device science, and that's what we're doing here at the university. Efficiency can be written as this product, uh, we need to collect our photons, more, more photons. Uh, and get a higher short circuit current. We need to have uh, materials which have absorption spectra that are better matched to to the solar spectrum. We need to have a deeper understanding of the origin of the open circuit voltage and how to manipulate the materials uh, so so that we can optimize that. And these are materials that are synthesized by chemists. So we can, if we understand this deeply enough, we can actually make what we need and put it all together. So, there's a synthesis component here. Uh, Colleagues who are making, Fred Woodle, Guy Bazan, who are making new new polymers, new acceptors, with the goal of using really molecular design of new materials uh, for efficient harvesting of the photons from the sun. Uh, We're getting to the point where we can write down molecular structures, invent them, create them, and then... Some of us can actually cook them, make them, and then we can uh, begin to use them in these kinds of applications. Uh, It's more complicated than that. Uh, I don't have time to go into it, but there's a very uh, significant material science uh, aspect to this. Uh, The whole concept is based on spontaneous phase separation. Uh, One has to control that phase separation uh, one needs to one needs to control the the, the structure, uh, the nanostructure, the uh, packing of the of the materials. There's uh, is a is a high level of complexity here, uh, and sometimes in the middle of the night I wonder why it works at all. But we're it, it does, and we're doing very well. But the goal here is is to optimize this nanoscale morphology uh, for separating the charge and for collecting the charge, and there again, as a, a group of people here who, who have uh, established themselves as experts in this area and, and who are carrying that load. And then finally, uh, obviously, one has to make, really make the solar cells from the materials, try to uh, optimize, get the, get the device science right uh, with the goal, with the goal of, uh, of high efficiency and long lifetime. Uh, each of these, each of these uh, last three slides involves behind the scenes, of course, a great deal of science, a great deal of scientific challenge. So the question, I guess, is, is it worth it? Okay, and I tried just in a, a one liner here to lay out the potential impact. We know, uh, we pretty much know the cost of goods. Uh, the cost that it required to produce this kind of a a solar cell. Um, And we have a good idea of what the installation costs would be. So we can make a a pretty good guesstimate of what the electricity would cost if this technology really goes. The cost of uh, conversion of sunlight to electricity so this number, uh, which is, a very, by the way, obviously a very attractive number, would uh, be the right, approximately the right number if we had devices with 8% efficiency and a lifetime of eight years. Okay? We're going to be able to do that. I'm really confident of that. Uh, we have in our labs today a 6% efficiency, and there have been experiments at Conarca uh, at which have already shown uh, that uh, one can get to several years of lifetime. Uh, so I'm pretty optimistic that we can do that. Uh, if you just play with me for a second, if you go that up to 12 years, 12% and 12 years lifetime, that's another factor, of, uh, another factor of two reduction. And now we're talking about literally a few cents per kilowatt hour. At that point the cost of, of the solar cells will be significantly less than the electronics, the inverter that you need to convert the uh, DC into the AC. So there's a potential uh, here a uh, major impact if we, can, uh, if we can in fact realize these goals. Uh, I said I was confident uh, we're we're seeing the kinds of materials we know what 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 we need to do, uh, and we're seeing these materials. Rea- we're realizing these materials in our laboratories here and from our colleagues elsewhere. Uh, so I think we're going to see this come true. I'll stop there. Be glad to uh, answer questions. I guess I should show. I guess I should show the last slide. Okay, so that's my house. That's my solar cells. Okay, what I like to do is take off those big, bulky, expensive silicon solar cells and replace them with this plastic stuff and hopefully even uh, one day uh, have the plastic solar cell integrated into the roofing tiles so when you install the roof, you install the, the photovoltaics. But, you know, you have to dream. Questions? Yes? Lecture last night, and my question is: using his cradle-to-cradle approach to uh, raw materials used, manufacture, etc., which of the PV technologies is is or can become the most? Wait, wait, too, too many things. One thing at a time. Environmental impact. Let's talk about that. Uh, well, let, let me fin- finish the question, and it'll become clear. Okay. Um, which of the TV technology is, is the most appropriate from a, an environmental impact approach? This is a question that I'm asked constantly by customers. Is this really clean, or is it ultimately a dirty product? <laughs> clean. I mean, uh, we use solvents. Uh, we, we cast the films from solution, uh, but the solvents are all handled uh, right on site with a very efficient... Uh, Means of taking care of those No emissions. The uh, substrate is a standard PET uh, plastic substrate. Uh, that's actually reusable, recyclable. The active material, uh, the the colored stuff that you see on on this on this demo, uh, is very thin. Only. Uh, about 100 nanometers thick, okay? So if I had a, if I had a uh, gallon jug of the solution, it'll cover Santa Barbara or something. I mean, so it's very thin. Uh, I don't think there's significant. Uh, these are non-toxic materials. There's no heavy metal in them. Uh, this is carbon and hydrogen with a little sulfur. So I, I think we're okay. Thank yes? You. I'm sorry, we actually we don't have time for any more questions. Okay. We just have to, to move on. If everybody can join me in thanking Professor. <laughs> yes, where is he? Aha, so our next speaker is Jean-Marie Terescon. Uh He's just joined us here at uh, UC Santa Barbara, uh, having come previously from uh, the Bell Telephone Labs, and then uh, several years in France, uh, and we've attracted him to California. Uh, his expertise is in the general area of electrochemistry uh, with a particular interest in uh, energy storage through batteries.
1: John May? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, thanks, uh, Alan, and thanks, John, for inviting me to come here and to give you a kind of overview, I will say, about the lithium-ion battery. And I have a difficult task because everyone hates batteries and complain about batteries. But I will try to, to show you more or less how the underlying science is very related to what's going on inside the Institute of Energy Efficiency. So why do we work first on the battery? You are going to find the same issues that people have been talking for the last day where we try to develop a new sustainable technology to better manage our renewable energy sources, maybe to couple with photovoltaics such as just just mentioned to you, and also to favour the development of electric transportation. As you know, we want to shift from thermal to electric vehicles. Since this has a the thermal, when you are burning one liter of gasoline, you are daily delivering one point five kilograms of CO two, which is about seven hundred and fifty litres. So, in this kind of application, what do you want? You want to store energy and to restitute as electricity. In order to do this, we are going to use the conversion of chemical energy into electricity. Why? Because both are using the same carrier that is the electron. So, here more or less the type of batteries. And here I would like to put something very straight because I was very frustrated yesterday and so on when everyone is showing some kind of forecast about factor 10 logarithmic scale. Let me compare that the work battery is not the work for microelectronics. And in order to do so, I would like to use this transparency in order to make the difference between energy storage and memory storage. And this graph, as you can see, I am using log scale. And you can see, and you know this better than me, that the progress has been huge on the field of microelectronics, where the number of actions per ship has been increased by 50,000 in 30 years. Or about 50 million number of megabits. Now I am going to put more or less our progress in the field of batteries. So you can see we are following a Moore law, but not the same one. Okay? We are talking here about two times every 50 years. So please, don't be tough with us. But unfortunately, the press has not been very kind to us because this is what you look on the field, on the press, looking at batteries. You can read it. I will just read the last one, because the study is the most interesting one. Our research in the field, move at a glacier pace. So this see more or less in the kind of environment that I am coming in. So let me tell you more or less now more details what are the challenges and what needs to be done. So if you look in the field of batteries, this is more or less a different technology that you have by now. You know all of them and out of this one, the lithium technology is of course the most attractive one and which has been, I'll say, the greatest advance of this last century. Now, how this technology that you all have in your laptops and your computers does work, very simple as indicated here. You have these two famous electrodes, lithium cobalt oxide and graphite, which are type of materials that are going to uptake and release lithium. I will not go into details, but the bottom line here, this is more or less what is going to control. The longer the time that we will have to talk, which is more or less the gravimetric capacity, which is given by this simple formula. So, for a quite a long time, people have been working in the field for 25 years and have defined kind of general rules. Turn out that after 25 years, the reason why we have this low progress, we end up to have these type of materials, which you have and you said today, but you can see we are still limited. We have an intrinsic limitation. So, back to 2000 and our team, we decide, in this case, to add the size as an additional variable to composition and structure in order to see if we can promote some better capacity and so on. And what we found, owing this kind of passage toward nanomaterials, we'll come out with completely new, different mechanisms as indicated here, that we call conversion reaction. But just here what you have to keep in mind that by going to nanomaterials, we can get a factor of three improvements. And also some compounds, some stones that didn't have any conducting electricity Electron and so on can be turned into attractive materials, which has already led to some products. And everyone knows the success stories of N123 and the states and developing lithium ion phosphate. So, this has recent advance at the nanomaterial scale. So, today, this is where we are. The, The lithium ion batteries are, as indicated, they are powering most of the electronic market. And owing to the arrival of nanomaterials, we can now reach about 210 watt-hour per kilogram and 600 watt-hour per liter. Of course, the main question is what we could do about automotive transportation, and here bigger challenges do arrive. Indeed, what are they? First, you want to increase energy density, always the same, and of course, as always, lower the cost, and you want to do it by a factor two at least in terms of energy density and decrease the cost by a factor of five. In order that you can go from $500 per kilowatt hour to about $100. Of course, what is very important is safety. And unfortunately, safety and cost are changing as opposite. If you want to increase safety, automatically you increase cost, and vice versa. And And last, and certainly one of the most important by now, is the material processes. Having the minimum environmental footprint, and you need to realize how we are making battery nowadays. This is more or less a cycle of batteries, where usually you pick up element from the ground. You need to do a extraction, purification, fabrication, and this stuff is going to be causally in energy in terms of CO2. Then, since we are going to increase, increase, excuse me, the amount of battery, as indicated here. You are obliged, and it's going to become mandatory to recycle. And this stuff is not easy, but you need to do it. All these kind of techniques here, which is again going to cost high CO2 impact. And last but not least, you need to have enough chemical elements. And everyone knows that our technology today is based on cobalt, and we are kind of becoming short on cobalt. So the main message of all this stuff: it is urgent to consider electron materials. Having the lowest possible cycle life cost and minimum eventual footprint. Why? Because we, are, we ask our car industry today, we need to shift from fossil fuel to batteries. Now there is no way that we can ask them, 50 years from now, guys, too bad, we give you batteries but we don't have enough materials. So we need to think about what will be the next generation of materials. So what will be the ideal situation you are dreaming? The ideal situation will be the following one. You could start. With from materials coming from biomass, doing all type of processes at room temperature, what we call green chemistry, then you can recycle and you can see the CO2 is coming back. Of course, this is more or less a type of research that we have launched, and I am going to show you several directions that we are pursuing along that line. We are going to see how we are moving to try to find inorganic materials that are abundant, and more importantly also how we are going to make them in order to have kind of a process. We are going to see the use of organic as a renewable lithium insertion electrode, and I will show you how we can do this. And finally also what's interesting is going back to some very old systems and with what we have learned about nanomaterials, how we can really use them. So if I look in the case of what are the trends here in terms of electrode materials, this is for instance a famous Lithuanian phosphate that is most prized material nowadays and the lithium technology, which is a mineral and which this and which was disregarded twenty years ago because of its poor electronic and connectivity. So in this case you can see that we cannot this material use this material as made, but we need really to transform to nanomaterials. And of course what is very important as a chemist is to find the best way to expedite it and to find a very low cost processes. And what we have been doing and what we are doing, we play with all our chemistry knowledge in order to develop different techniques, as indicated here, when we move from the classical ceramic process to some low-temperature technique, solution techniques, during which we both have an economy of atoms and also with decrease temperature. So we have an eco-efficient process. Of course, I am not going to detail some of this stuff, but still there is one remark that I want to make is the last approach here which is biopurine and this will fit very nicely with what Alan mentioned previously and what is going on at the institute where some people are doing biomineralization and what we try to do and what we have achieved is to synthesize these materials, as indicated here by using here this bacteria that is going to force hydrolysis of our urea in our materials. to make the story short you can do this and as you see and this nice as shown in microscopy picture, you can obtain needles or very neuro, nanoparticles of the lithium-ion phosphate. So of course, this is just the beginning, but there is a large amount of materials that can be made using these processes. And here I make a list of all types of materials that we are targeting nowadays. Now this is a question regarding the nanomaterial approach. Now the question is, what will we gain by moving from inorganic to organic compounds and again here, moving to the field that Alan Eager has mentioned previously. What we have looked here is clearly with a different concept of seeing if these organic compounds cool and cert lithium. And we went to this kind of old chemistry, the oxocarbon, because for the side story, as a matter of fact, the first compound that has been ever made by men was potassium carbonate that has been made about the eighteenth centuries. We look at this compound which here this carboxyl function. And when you look at these materials, you find that they can't directly insert lithium. And of course, if you make a new compound, you want to claim something good, you need to do some benchmarking. And when we do some benchmarking with the famous compound that we have today, which has lithium coloxide and lithium N phosphate at our, at our benchmark, you can see that it's organic molecule and it can perform very nicely with a huge increase in energy density. Of course, if you put this in the cast in the kind of volumetric density, owing to the fact that the polymers are light compared to inorganic compounds, here the advantage is somewhat decreased. But still, up to one C rate, which means in this case you can use this power in one hour, you can have nice performances. But the most spectacular result is the fact that these compounds can't be made from natural resources. This is a molecule that we are using this molecule can be made via some kind of chemical reaction from some kind of carbohydrate and this carbohydrate as indicated here can be obtained from this kind of phytic acid which is really a by product or product that you can find and which is distributed in a lot of plants and find for instance constitute 8 percent of the dry weight of corn obliqu so which means that we can really go from biomass to active electrode materials and of course, people complain that polymers don't hold high temperature. This is more or less what we have achieved recently, where we can go up to 200 degrees C, and we have a perfect performances with nice rate. And not more than one month ago, we have realized what we call the first renewable organic lithium cell, which in this case has the behavior indicated here. Of course, people can criticize very strongly since the potential is relatively small, and so on. But these need to be improved. The so first of this slide was simply to give you the message that maybe we need to look a new concept, a new way of designing batteries. And now you can really have the cycle process where you can take materials coming from the biomass, you can do some bioraffinery, fabrication, all this stuff can be done at very relativ- relatively low temperature, near room temperature. So definitively there is a paradigm shift and present concept for improving the lithium batteries. Now, of course what is very important is that the gain by going to organics, is not going to be in terms of performances. You will not make a battery that will perform better than nowadays lithium carbon oxide carbon or lithium and phosphate carbon. But the advantage of this is that you will use materials that are abundant and resource and so on. Now, if you want to increase the capacity while maintaining the stability and the green energy storage, now you may want to revisit what people have done on lithium air batteries and so on. And here I just want to show you some research that we have carried out now where again this is all technology that peop everyone given up. Now with all the learning that we have done on nanomaterials, we know how to nanostructure, electrode and so on. Which is the one why such a battery that was used long time ago as a primary battery now can be rechargeable. And what you look here is what we have achieved in terms of cycling, you can see we can get very nice cycling. Of course, if I if I show you only four cycles, it's because after ten cycles we cannot keep up the capacity, so we are still quite limited. But still, it's quite promising. And of course, we have a huge amount of work in terms of electrode optimization, electrode porosity, and so on. But of course, you need to realize that this is only one third of the metal air battery, since we have also to solve the electrolyte and the negative, which is the lithium issues, Which is why research in the field of battery is relatively slow, because we have a large amount of interfaces. So, if you want to look, or if you want to have my outlook on the field of lithium and batteries, I should say, this is more or less what we are today, where we talk about this commercial reaction electrode. The so organic electrodes are somewhere here. The lithium air. And of course, I put there some kind of thing that I am very interested in, is maybe now start to think also of other chemistries and lithium, since you have heard also of the limited supply or some limited supply lithium. But again, even in my crazy forecast, you can see I solely have a factor two here. So again, realise that the Moore law doesn't apply to our field of electrochemistry, unfortunately. And of course I hope dearly, that some of these technologies that I mentioned here can be directly or can use at least So fundamental technology platform of the institute to develop. And thank you for your attention.
2: In an application where uh, capacity is not the criteria but the ability to recharge multiple times or the cycle times to go up, what are the limitations I- in that and is that something that is going to be improved from these uh, green manufacturing processes? Uh,
1: again, there is different different topics. When you want to improve lifetime, you are going to work at the electrodes. And are as additives, you can put to the electrolyte and so on. So to increase the lifetime, we are going to select the right additive and modify the particles within the electrode materials in the way that we are binding the particles together. Because you need to realize that an electrode material again a complication is not a single material, but is a formulation in which you have a binder, you have a electronic conductor plus an active materials, and we need more or less to size the three components in order to design an electrode for either high density application or cycle life and so on. And the lithium air for sure can be long cycle life, but we need to make it cycle first.
0: Storage group, uh, Lan Bao president, um, and CEO of BSST, and he'll be talking on converting transportation to home HVAC systems to operate on renewable energy sources.
2: Thank you. I I will try to uh, go through some of the slides I had prepared a little bit fast uh, in order to um, make up a little time uh, for a town hall meeting. Um, As as we look at uh, some of the new innovations in uh, uh, energy conservation, some of the things that uh, happen are adverse events, and the adverse events need to be addressed in some fashion. In particular, uh, when we have HVAC systems, these are heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems, um, such systems, and the easiest example is in the car, um, now have uh, alternate needs uh, for power sources. Heating is no longer free. If we do not have the engine on, for example, in an electric vehicle, uh, then what is the source of heat? If we have a hybrid vehicle where the engine is off during decelerations and stop, what is the source of heat? Um, In these cases, then, we need to expend energy in a new way. We need to develop a source of heat. And then the question becomes, how can we do that efficiently, since in some cases, this is a brand new requirement. The solution in the automobile, for example, is to have a firebox or a heating source that's an alternative heater. This is used in Europe fairly extensively uh, for small diesel engines, where it takes a very long time for the engine to heat up and provide heat, and it's inadequate in the winter and uh, short commutes in much of northern Europe. So in such systems, we maybe defeat some of the things that we are trying to accomplish as a society for the practical reality of providing something that causes people to buy vehicles, and that is comfort in the vehicle when it's cold. And so clearly a combustion heat source would not be a good choice, but it is the choice, and several million are sold a year in Europe today. An alternative is resistive heaters. Resistive heaters have uh, the issue that they are very inefficient. Uh, they uh, simply convert electric power directly uh, into heat through dual effect. Uh, this is a very um, thermodynamically inefficient process. And as a result, it is a process that uh, is unacceptable as we try To improve uh, system level efficiency so what are the alternatives I'm going to talk about those alternatives and I'm also uh, going to uh, spend a few moments uh, talking about uh, the analogy of this the analog of this in the home where heating takes on different meaning if we choose not to use fossil fuels we have some options and I'll talk about those options the, the, the main thrust of what I want to talk about is a transformational technology which is solid state, which is um, thermoelectrics, the conversion of electricity directly into some other form of power. For example, electricity into uh, hot and cold, uh, such as is done with the heat pump, and the reverse process. The reverse process is uh, where um, heat and uh, temperature gradient is converted into electric power. Thermoelectrics uh, look attractive in some ways because they are uh, electric uh, powered devices, they are solid state devices, they have no gaseous emissions. If we think of traditional air conditioners, we think of uh, two phase uh, fluids in the past, not today, in the past it has been freons, Um, The present uh, two-phase fluids have some environmental issues, although they're getting better, and uh, certainly over time, CO2, for example, as a refrigerant would have rather minimal uh, environmental impact issues. Uh, But nevertheless, they are mechanical systems, they leak, and uh, they have uh, certain deficiencies. Also, it is somewhat difficult over a broad temperature range to make them work in reverse, make them heat and cool. The thermoelectrics are a technology that is emerging and uh, are described here. I'll I'll stick primarily uh, to cooling and heating. Uh, Basically, there are two uh, semiconductor materials uh, where the working fluid in the case of thermoelectrics, rather than some like material are simply electrons and um, um, whole uh, uh, electron pairs are created at one surface as they are uh, created energy is absorbed and uh, where the electron whole pairs combine, energy is uh, given off the result is pumping of energy from one surface to another The reverse process, which I won't spend much time on, is uh, uh, creating electric power, where heat uh, uh, separates uh, and creates a whole electron pair. And then at a lower temperature, uh, the uh, pair is uh, combined again. Thermoelectric devices are typically formed into arrays. For example, here is a ray that was produced here at Santa Barbara. It is uh, for low temperature power generation, waste heat recovery, Um, but the same technology is being developed uh, for cooling and heating application. You can see a very large array of uh, elements. Uh, each, Each of these then is a little solid state heat engine, each pair of these, and this array has uh, quite a number on a 16 by 16 array in this dimensions about 2 centimeters by 2 centimeters uh, so these devices are large arrays of solid-state heat engines then thermoelectric devices as I mentioned can cool and by re- reversing the electric current heat so they are reversible in, in that ex- uh, sense also and so Uh, They can provide both heating and cooling within a very simple, solid-state package. That's very attractive. Um, The heat that is uh, created is created in the form of a heat pump, and it follows certain uh, rules, uh, Carnot cycle uh, uh, rules, that... uh, Uh, allow the device to have a degree of efficiency that's measured in terms of a coefficient of performance. And that number, um, subject to second law thermodynamics, can be up to a certain limit. But typically, uh, for devices of this sort, it's uh, the order of one and a half, two times the amount of electric power put in uh, under normal operating circumstances with better and more efficient thermoelectric materials, that number could be higher. And one of the uh, serious problems with thermoelectrics is that the efficiency has not been high enough. And here at uh, Santa Barbara and at other institutions, that is being worked on uh, very aggressively. But there has not been much progress. It has been a long struggle. I'll talk very quickly about some of the approaches uh, to increasing the efficiency. Um, At Ohio State University, materials have gone from a level to about double what, what the materials were, and they have done so by improving A factor called the power factor this term here is the figure of merit for a thermoelectric material and they have improved the power factor our measurements uh, validate uh, uh, their results similarly at Michigan State University they have made improvements in their case they have reduced the thermal conductivity Uh, here at Santa Barbara um, based on work done here and at University of California at Santa Cruz, they have combined the two and improved the power factor and improved the thermal conductivity. And the result has been even larger improvements. Uh, This is about an 80% improvement over conventional materials. So there is some signs that improvement uh, can be made. Um, One of the uses for thermoelectrics, then, is. to provide heating and cooling. There are two problems with heating and cooling. One is the conversion efficiency, how much thermal power is created, and the second is the distribution problem. How do you get it to the occupant in the case of a car? And uh, in this case, what we're doing is heating and cooling the seat of a car using thermoelectrics. Although the thermoelectric conversion efficiency is somewhat low, the uh, efficiency of coupling it to the human is very, very high. And without going into details, it's about 50 times higher than the coupling efficiency uh, to an occupant from the automobile's air conditioner itself. About 50 times because much of the air in the air conditioner goes to heating the roof of the car heating the back seat if no one's there uh, heating the floor etc so the coupling uh, is much higher in this case even though the device is less efficient Uh, this leads to the concept of zonal heating and cooling or regional heating or cooling or heating and cooling on demand and a solid state device that can be distributed readily and has a very small uh, natural size to to, uh, the heat pump devices or the engines um, is very amenable to that. Uh, In a car, in heating, um, the amount of power that is used with resistive heating in a traditional car uh, during startup is uh, about two kilowatts. If we use zonal heating and use a thermoelectric heat pump, uh, that number uh, drops substantially to a, about one third. And so the result is that a substantial energy savings compared what it would have been with just resistive heating as possible. This partially then overcomes the deficiencies Uh, that arose uh, because we eliminated a free waste heat source in the vehicle. Um, If we just summarize very quickly and look at the home, and these are rough numbers, these are absolutely not precise, but hopefully they give a a correct indication of uh, the the energy budgets uh, with different energy sources as we go from fossil fuels and we transport them to the home, and we use a, a standard heating system to heat the home, we get about 900 watt-hours of heating if we start with a 1,000 watt-hours of uh, capacity from the energy source. If we take the same fossil fuel and combust it extremely efficiently, about as efficiently as we know how, and produce electricity from it, and then put it to the home and use it again with a thermoelectric now heat pump, then we we get uh, approximately 1,800 watts hours of heating. And so uh, the heat pumping capability of the thermoelectric device boosts uh, the amount by about a factor of three. We could use other forms of heat pumps as well as the solid state heat pumps and do slightly better or about the same. I don't mean to imply that this is the only possibility. But the very interesting thing is, if we now take a wind machine or some other uh, uh, solar uh, form of of energy production or hydroelectric that directly converts some form of renewable energy and we have 1,000 watt-hours produced, and we transport it into the home. Then, with a the heat pump, we have about 2,500 uh, watt-hours of, of heating. In cooling, the uh, the efficiency is not so attractive, and the thermoelectric would be less efficient than a standard two-phase refrigerant. Work at Santa Barbara here and elsewhere on uh, better thermoelectric materials have the prospect of correcting that deficiency. If we had thermoelectric materials that are about twice as good as they are today, uh, that difference would be eliminated. In some cases, uh, it could even be a lower number. In the case of hybrid electric vehicles, for example, uh, it needs to be about a 30% improvement uh, to have parity uh, for cooling. And in heating, uh, there is a substantial gain. So the result is that we can, rather than use a fossil fuel and transport it and heat a home directly, and use the combustion process, which is traditionally done in a very inefficient way, if we substitute some form of a heat pump and we can use renewable energy source and put it on the grid, it becomes a very efficient way then uh, to overcome this difficulty. Similarly, in, a, in an electrified vehicle, a hybrid, a plug-in hybrid, an electric vehicle, a pure electric vehicle, um, we can convert then electric power uh, directly um, into the propulsion system and the energy management system of the vehicle and um, uh, achieve, again, the same type of ratio in efficiency gain compared with resistive heating. So both the, the technology has the prospect then of helping resolve some of the issues uh, that are created uh, by the in desire to... Uh, convert from fossil fuels uh, to other power systems. The result is that some of our societal goals uh, and the need for greenhouse uh, gas emission reductions and CO2 emission reductions uh, solve certain problems, creates others, and it creates opportunities for new technologies, in particular solid-state energy conversion technologies, that might then Uh, be a significant contributor uh, to the solution to the resultant problems. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.